KYW Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. There was nothing. It was National League Baseball to me. It's no big deal. I knocked you down, dude. Get up and hit. Come on. Show me what you got. Dallas Green had taught me when you knock a man down, don't give him a good pitch to hit. So I threw my nastiest pitch of the whole World Series, nasty slider, which you referred to earlier. Yep. He took probably his ugliest cut he's taken maybe in his career, yep. and I struck him out. And our guest this week is former Phillies pitcher Dickie Knowles, who has spent uh, the last several years as the employee assistance professional for the organization. Dickie, thanks so much for coming in. Matt, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So before, let's set the to the tone here. Employee assistance professional, for someone who's not familiar, what is your, your, your role in the organization? Well, we just shortened it to EAP, but employee assistance professional is a worksite job performance-related program, a resource uh, I handle the major minor league players. Most Fortune, a Fortune 500 companies, have EAPs. Banks have EAPs. EAPs started from alcohol occupational programs. Uh, they may have started a little before then. I know Kodak had one. I uh, started an EAP program. Ford Motor Company started one, and and Dupont were big leading people in the in the uh, employee assistant field. And what it was was when he had Almaca, which was alcohol labor management. It basically. Uh, when, you, when you had a person that could go between management and the employees to help with alcohol problems. Because if you go back in time, when someone had alcohol problems, how did you deal with it? Fired them. Mm-hmm. Already went to jail. And then, you know, many housewives were getting tired of their husbands going to jail for a, a, an addiction they couldn't control. So you, then you ended up with alcohol occupational programs to help with these problems. And it was mainly alcohol, but now they expanded to help with marriage, financial, legal, uh, drug and alcohol, uh, mood disorders, which would be uh, uh, mental health issues. And uh, it really covers just about everything. It, I just put it in one little lump sum. Problems that affect your work or your life. I can tell just by that little part of the conversation, there is no typical day for you. But what are, are some of the things you would do? I mean, you traveled all the, the Phillies minor league teams and obviously with the big league club and, and just meet with meet with people? Well, the way, the way it, you know, I started with the Phillies when my career ended. I didn't want it to end, but a lot of people were smarter than me and made that decision for me. So David Montgomery, I had went up to see David Montgomery and I wanted to do a, I had a program called SAVE, Students, Attitudes, Values, Education, Substance Abuse. It was a prevention program. And I was big on prevention. And I, my, I had, I'm a recovering person. I've been sober since April 9th of 1983. So I wanted others. And I thought if I could help other people stay away from the same thing. We, we recovering people get into that. I don't know what it is, but we, we want to give back because somebody saved our life. So I wanted to do that. I was really, um, uh, I feel like we've forgotten about the kids in this country. Once again, I wanted, I felt like we had gotten forgotten about kids and I wanted to get the message out. That's the, that's the uh, arena that I thought we needed to focus on the most. So I developed this program, and David liked it. And I went out, and I'm, I'm, I'm going out to talk to schools all over the place, and it exploded. Now I'm talking to three or four schools a day, and I didn't expect that to happen, but it did. And then uh, David got to know me a little bit, and uh, I think it was his foresight that uh, we had a doctor at that time that was a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Uh, William O'Brien, a wonderful guy, was our EAP. We had doc- uh, Joel Fish was our sports psychologist, so we had the whole arena covered. You know, we had a sports psychologist, we had a psychiatrist, and we had a recovering guy. And uh, my role at that point was education. I had the best job in baseball. I should have stayed with it. I went in and talked to the kids, you know, about pitching inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, me, of all people, <laughs> pitching them to pitch inside. And, and also about the mental aspect of baseball. And then I would always give them a drug and alcohol talk. Don't let this 
getting, you know, bring your dreams down. Our lives are not made by the dreams that we dream, but by the choices that we make. Make good choices. That's basically what I would do. No pressure. And then all of a sudden the pressure sped up on me because now I'm, now I'm helping people. Uh, Dr. O'Brien felt like I'd be a good EAP. David Montgomery sent me to Seattle to, to learn about employee assistance and to, to learn about the whole field. And I went out there and came back and I took the exam to become an EAP and failed it. And I went to him and said, see, I don't, I don't think you need me to do this. I'm a former player. You got psychiatrists all through baseball. At the time, Major League Baseball in 1981 uh, implemented EAPs in every, in every team. And those EAPs, by far and large, I believe all may have been in the very beginning psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. And it was because of the drug problem of the 80s. Right. And uh, so we've evolved from that to, to the EAPs are, they range from um, uh, MSWs to psychiatrists to psychologists to recovering people like myself. I may be the last EAP that was a former player. Sam McDowell was the first. And Sam was probably most instrumental in me taking the job as an EAP. Uh, you know, when I called him and told him about it, he was like, You've always wanted to be just like me because he was my EAP <laughs> in Texas. So go ahead. And Sam's a wonderful guy. And I said, well, I think I'm going to do it, Sam, but I'm scared to death of doing it. So how many people do you deal with in a week, in a month? It, it, it varies. This is a busy time, believe it or not, Thanksgiving. And people. Ne- if you asked, did a survey with the people that I work for in the organization and said, what's Dickie's busy time? They'd say spring training. And that's because of therapeutic use exemptions, Mm -hmm. because I can run those and control those. And that's probably my pet peeve one, and that's for medication for ADD guys and et cetera. But uh, uh, this time of the year is tough on people. And this time of the year, I I stay busy. I'll give you an example. The other night, uh, I had an event down at the ballpark, one of the most special events I've been to, uh, with Joe Girardi starting it off, and a young lady had cancer ending it. And in between that, I was getting phone calls like crazy, and I was going, why tonight? So it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. and I made a comment earlier with a good friend of mine who we were honoring there. I made a comment to him earlier. I said, Vince, you watch my, f-. I said, tonight is a night I worry about because I've already had one call. And one call usually runs into, you don't get one call mm-hmm. very often. And I'm telling you, it's uncanny. Then there'll be another call. And I had, I had, uh, I had a couple calls around, uh, you know, thanks if they after Thanksgiving. And then that was a very busy day for me, but I think trust is the most important thing. I think the athletes trust me. Uh, I know it's easier when I'm there uh, with them, and to give you a little bit how it works, I'm there for the major minor league players. I watched Utley, Howard, and Rollins all grow up. I knew, I, I mean, I watched them play from the time they signed. Those type of players I never worried about because they knew me. Mm-hmm. So I never walk in a major league clubhouse going, does that guy trust me? I knew that guy trusted me. I knew that person knew I had the best interest of their, of, and their best interest in my heart. It's the guy that comes over now, you know, with free agency and a lot of movement that takes time to get their trust. And uh, I'll go into the major league clubhouse. I try not to bother them. I try to make sure they know what I do. I'll go in there. Now, when I first started, I I lingered in the major league clubhouse a lot because I knew those guys. I played with them. They wouldn't let me go home. I know you ain't going nowhere. Hang out in here. And uh, I think it's I think I've evolved into a better EAP by understanding that it's their clubhouse. I'm a former player, former player. So then, you know, I'll go out on the field and let them see me. I think being visible, being there was David Montgomery's big thing. Be there. I want you in uniform in the minor leagues. And I remember going uniform, and I love being in uniform. But when you're in uniform, you're out on the field, you're going to find out a whole lot more. Plus, a baseball player, I think we miss, 
And I missed it. I thought, I thought for sure that I wasn't going to be very good at this. I thought you need a doctor, you need a psychiatrist, you need a psychologist, someone that's being able, that would be able to diagnose and treat. Uh, but I learned about depression. I learned about anxiety and, and dealing with it so much. I feel like I know as much about it as many, but I don't step out of bounds and treat it, of course. But it helps me to be able to refer and assess it. But just being there, David said, when you're there, when they see you, they know that they don't got to go searching for you. I think it helps. I think it. I think it's critical, and I think people don't understand it's critical to know. You know, I, if I was a baseball player, I don't want you to know what I do. I don't want you to know my industry to help me with a, a mental health issue, an addiction issue, a recovery issue, or, or or mood disorder, or my daughter, or you know, who has depression, or my son who may be having anxiety, or my wife that has depression. I won't need a baseball player, former player, to do that. So that was a part that I was confusing. But then David felt like the part was, if you're there all the time and you've got the medical people and they trust you, I think we can get it done a little quicker. If someone ha- is having a problem with their wife and she has depression and they they got to s- call an 800 number or they got to go find the doctor themselves. But I expect you to be able to talk to that person and say, here's a number for your, your wife. I know this doctor very well. I can get her in a lot quicker than, st- you know, it's... November now. A lot of times you call a psychiatrist now, you get to see them in, in March. Right. And so I think that's what David had in mind. Now, on the minor league side, I will travel around. Doesn't I, I don't want to just come when you have a problem because, you know, I walk in, everybody's going to go, Dickie's here. Who's messed up? Right. So David had that uh, vision, too, and he envisioned an organization where hopefully we'd be able to help any and everybody we could. So what I would do was I would go into the minor leagues put my uniform on, throw batting practice, all the wonderful things that a coach gets to do, be there, sit in the bullpen, watch the game, you know, sit in the dugout, watch the game, stay four days, go to another club, and that way they get to know you, mm-hmm. and they get to it really, uh, you get to know them. So I think that was, I don't think you'll see this model again. I really don't. I don't think, I think I'm going to be a dinosaur. Not that I'm older and dirt, but I'll be a <laughs> dinosaur in other ways pretty soon. So you mentioned, and obviously, Every situation is different, but you mentioned that you're doing the event and you're getting calls. Yeah. Do you get mostly calls from guys saying, I need to talk? Or is it people say, hey, I'm worried about X, Y, and Z. Can you check in on them? It can range from a lot of different things. Like uh, you, you, you may get a call. Um, you know, you might get a call about a family member. Uh, you got to treat that as though it's the person. I, I've always felt like that I need to sit in the same seat where they are. When they call me, I try quickly to sit in the same seat. One of my, I don't know if it's a negative thing or not, but one of my, um, I don't want to call it self-defeating behavior either because it's not one of those. But one of the things that, that I do when I try to sit in another person's seat and one of the things that I do that probably might be a little bit tough on some people when they look at it and say, man, you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to stress yourself out. Is If I do get a call, I want to handle that call. And everything around me is not important no more. Um, and sometimes that bites me. That, mm-hmm. that gets me in trouble because maybe I'm at an event and that event is what I need to focus on, but I can't. And I I'll, I'll want to know. I need to solve this. I need to help this person. We need to get this done. If I don't get this done, it's hard for me to sit, go to bed at night and relax because there there could be another one behind that one. And then there's days when you don't get any calls. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's times when you're talking about baseball. Uh, I think um, 
you know, this generation's changed a little bit. We've got different types of baseball going on. But I think one of the powers of what I was able to do during my career is when a player came to me to talk about things other than off-the-field problems like, you know, hey, man, I'm struggling. And I, and I would listen. If it's a hitter, I'm not going to offer, well, I think you're, you know, I, I think you need to do this. You're pulling your shoulder. I think you need to drive through the ball. I would never do that because in our field, I'm a pitcher. I can talk about pitching from now to the end of the year, but I'm not going to talk about hitting. So to listen to them and then maybe give them some sort of feedback, reality, truth feedback, then finish it with positive stuff. Confidence is a big part of this game. Um, how do you develop confidence, though? You develop confidence by being comfortable. And how do you get comfortable? So, I mean, it, it's, it's really, it's a lot to know. It's, but I believe they're, they're baseball players. Their life is not going to work nine to five every day. They're baseball players. People think they show up at the ball field a certain time to work. No, they're at the ball field all day long. Mm-hmm. And if they're not there all day long, then they're looked down upon. You know, where is this guy at? But when they're there, it's a very, it, it's, you have to understand that they're there to play and perform. Is there stress and pressure with that? Sure, there is. I think Harper probably experienced more pressure and stress than I ever did, and he hasn't played in a World Series yet because he's a superstar player. Um, I don't look at him as a superstar player. I look at him as a person, and that's the other thing I had to do is look at the people. I can't look at them as baseball people. I have to look at them as a person when it comes to whatever issues they have. If it's Now we got mental skills people, and we got some very good mental skills people in baseball, so now they handle that. So now all I got to worry about is EAP, but I like that other part. I like doing the baseball part, you know, so that's been a uh, transition for me to understand that that's now for the mental skills people. And I need to focus on doing the baseball part. I need to focus on doing the EAP part. Let's reverse that. Nope. I need to focus on doing the EAP part. So I'm sure it's always been a wide range of things that you would deal with because there's, but as do you notice, has the pendulum swift? Anxiety. Is it, there you go. Is it more anxiety now than, and is it, I don't know that more people have more anxiety, but are people more willing to open up and look for help for it? We've looked at that naturally that it's, it's, uh, you know, we've had a, a stigma on mental health issues in sports. A lot of people that had anxiety would, would hide it. They don't want their employers to know because it might cost them money. Uh, a lot of people that have depression would drink it away and hide it in the, in the old days. I think that the awareness is way better than it's ever been in baseball. And I think that's critical. I think it's very important. I think when players come forward for something like that, uh, I think they realize now through a confidential resource they can get help for that. Uh, the only problem with what I see in, in baseball and uh, in any sport and in, in, in society, baseball and sports in general mimic society, and society mimics baseball and sports in many ways. Take, for instance, if you go to a school in high school right now, you ask the teacher, what's what's the biggest increase here? Is it is it an ADD or is it in depression, you know, or is it anxiety? I'm pretty sure they always say anxiety, anxiety. Uh, our, our society, look what these kids grow up with. They grew mm-hmm. up with 911, many of them. Many of them grew up with a little worse after that, if you can imagine that. So our, our kids have grown up in a world where they've had mass shootings. They've had, you know, they go to the mall. I have a friend of mine that uh, has a son that suffers from some anxiety and he doesn't like to go to malls on Friday nights. And, and so he stays away. Just stay away from all Friday night because in his mind, that's the night it could happen. So they grow up in a different world than we grew up in. So I think some anxiety has been heightened by society and also been heightened by these things. 
and all, you know, I'm holding a cell phone up, of course, and, and uh, iPads and social media and things like that. Uh, I could have done a lot of things in my life that would have, if you know anything about my life, Matt, which I'm sure you've done mm-hmm. the homework, if I would have lived in this era today, I don't think I'd have made it to the major leagues. I think with the social media would have buried me, and I think I would have had a hard time um, you know, surviving social media. So talking about your life, and you mentioned sober since April 9th, 1983, 1983. was alcohol your main vice when you were younger? Yeah, alcohol was my problem. I'm an alcoholic, Um, uh, but I smoked a lot of pot, and I did drugs, not very often, but I did drugs. It's the whole progression of a a, a disease of addiction. When I was growing up, I drank a lot. I got into, you know, problems drinking. You know, it was always something to do with drinking. You know, I, I, I got arrested so many times, but I never ran nobody over or shot nobody earlier, you know, in my life. Those things were just, I pulled a fire alarm one night and got arrested in Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, I mean, not Reading, Pennsylvania, Spartanburg, South Carolina. The problem was I pulled a fire alarm and there was four ballplayers with us and one of them fell out on the street drunk. We're all out drinking. And I'm laughing about it. Then the police came. It wasn't funny no more. I got arrested. Um, you know, I, I urinated in the street in Reading one day with a police officer across the street. Maybe I was crying out for help and didn't know it. He rolled his window down and said, son, are you stupid? What are you doing? I said, no, I'm writing my name. He didn't like that answer. So I got arrested. I came in the next day. People laughed about it, put white adhesive tape on the lockers. Nikki restroom, don't pee on my shoes. <laughs> you know, I got, I got arrested my first year in professional baseball after Dallas Green. When they signed me, they'd heard about my life. I was known as a fighter and a little bit of a rowdy person. And I never considered myself a fighter or a rowdy person. And first night I'm in um, Auburn, New York, my first wasn't the first night stories about me get, but, and I end up telling them too, because everybody else tells them it was first couple nights and I got arrested. You know, I went into a bar and we were in there and a couple of players got in fights and, um, you know, we had a kid from Puerto Rico. We had a kid from Texas. We had a kid from California and a kid from Nebraska. And you got this little kid from white kid from Charlotte, North Carolina that goes to jail. Why? Cause I didn't stop fighting. So alcohol definitely was starting to affect my life in ways. I, I and I'd wake up sometimes and ask, hear what the players said I did. And I go, I did that? Well, I, I don't remember doing that. And then, you know, it seemed to be laughed off. And, uh, you know, I got arrested in uh, Oklahoma City. I went into a bar one. It was first week, may have been the first three days. I went into a bar. It's called After the Gold Rush. And I'm in this bar, and it's free beer night, and they got these plastic cups. And um, I see a girl c- crying, so I asked her, can I buy you a beer? And, of course, I knew she had a fight with her boyfriend, and she laughed because it's free beer night. So mm-hmm. I gave her a beer and see, see, things ain't, too bad. And we started to talk and then her boyfriend came up and of course some things happened and it was a fight that broke out. And I ended up missing a couple of weeks of the season of baseball because I couldn't control myself, couldn't control my emotions when I drank. Um, the reason that April 9th of 1983 is a date because I got kicked out of Venezuela. Um, I don't know if you know about that, but I, I do. Yeah. And I wasn't naked. When I was up in that six-story apartment. Now, see, I didn't see that. I saw you got kicked out of Venezuela for throwing furniture out of an apartment. Is that how? Tell, tell me the story. Okay. I'm in Venezuela, and uh, I went home. I, I, I made the major leagues in 1979. And the Phillies, I thought I was going to go home and tell all my buddies, you know how you're growing up and you're seeing your minor leagues. When are you going to be a pro? I am a pro. Mm. No, 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 no. Like a real pro. When I made it to the major leagues, I'm like every other young kid. I want to go home and enjoy that. And they sent me to Instructional League, then to Venezuela. When I got to Venezuela, my great friend Lonnie Smith told me I needed to be careful in Venezuela. You can't act like a fool here. And I was asking, like, what's that mean? Uh, so I acted like a fool right off the bat. You know, I went out and I dominated pitching, and we had the big froze back then, and mine had come out. You know, I looked like, I don't know what I looked like, but I, I like looking wild over there because um, 
you know, I, I had I, I had an issue with alcohol, but also had it. I know this sounds crazy. Everybody's macho about saying this, but I had an issue with women. I loved women. I felt like that, you know, I was going to spend my time in Venezuela, you know, doing the same things I did over here. The women were beautiful and I felt like every one of them was in love with me. You know, the alcoholic's brain, the way it works. And I met a couple girls over there. They happened to deal in cocaine. And um, uh, I had a hemorrhoid problem. Team went on the road. Uh, those young ladies wanted to sell me the drugs. And after trying cocaine for the very first time in my life, I went by that six-story apartment window that would haunt me for the rest of my life. And I stood there and gritted my teeth and felt like I was having fun and never moved the whole night. The next day I woke up and I didn't like the way I felt. I didn't wake up. I got up to go to the ballpark. I was paranoid as can be. I kept thinking Tony Taylor, our manager, and Ruben O'Mara, our general manager, is going to know that I'm high. And everybody was trying to settle me down, uh, the guys that used it with me. And I've said, man, I'll never do that stuff again. Well, uh, I, I intended not to do it again. I didn't think having fun was gritting your teeth and looking out a window and being paranoid and going back and continue to do it over and over. Uh, and we know cocaine now, how, you know, how addicting it can be on the brain. So I said, I'll never do that again. And uh, all I do is smoke pot. Like that's going to be okay. But I know the marijuana led me to the cocaine because when I'd smoke pot, I think, or the alcohol combined and I'd get a little buzz, I'd, they figured it out. I'd do about anything. So what did the team went on the road to Caracas? I had a hemorrhoid issue. The girls came to my house. And, of course, they knew that I was going to leave with them. So I left with them. I went to Mivakita's restaurant. And I said, no, 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 no. The way I spoke Spanish then was, no, 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 no. Me no like that cocaine. And, of course, they knew after a couple beers, mm-hmm. a couple joints, he'll be prime time ready for it. And, of course, I did it and ended up getting in a fight that night. And if you want to know what happened, and if you want me to be honest, which I think I need to quit telling stories about what I hear, because that burned me in the 1980 uh, playoff game, I mean, World Series game I pitched. But um, I, I don't know. All I know is it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And there was some fighting. And then I went back to the six-story apartment I told you about, and I got back there. There was a gentleman that was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Why I got mad at him, I haven't figured that out either. But he did do some of this to me about, you know, he seen me get out of jail uh, they arrested me, let me out of jail, went back to that apartment. And I had a beer in my hand. I probably you know, fractured my jaw, got my face all smashed up. And one of the wives wanted to get me to settle down to go to the hospital. It's not easy to figure out where to go to hospital in Venezuela when you got a bunch of American people in the same building. So I think they were trying to figure that out. Like I said, I don't really know, but I do know this. Uh, once I started drinking those beers and listening to some of the wives later, I got rowdy at him and I threw a chair at him. He may have flipped me off. I don't know. I threw another chair at him. Wasn't a lot of furniture now. Then I threw a table at him. I didn't throw the couch, which they said. <laughs> but I started saying that too because it's good theater. You know, right. hey, why, why? They're going to make fun of me. I might as well let them know. Um, and the, the the story is I threw everything out the window, but but the television, it was Lonnie's. I don't think Lonnie Smith brought a television from home to, over there to watch. Only Jeff Stone did that from what I understand. But um, all I know is I threw a bunch of stuff out the window. Uh, they were apparently on the rooftop with guns. Ruben O'Mara resigned. Tony Taylor resigned. I, I'm still indebted to those guys for this, to this day. And they kicked me out of Venezuela. Wow. I came back to the States and I thought, I, I don't know if my career is going to continue. See what I mean about so. And Paul Owen stayed behind me, and Dallas Green stayed behind me and uh, uh, pitched in the World Series the very next year. Yes, you did. Time to take a break here on One on One. We will have more with Dickie Knowles right after this.
It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. And we're back here on one-on-one, our guest this week, former Phillies pitcher Dickie Knowles. So what was 19, what happened April 9th, 1983? Well, that's, that's probably the darkest moment I've had in my life as far as addiction is concerned. It should have been Venezuela. It should have been some other moments. But this one by far and large was because uh, Dallas Green came to me in spring training in 1983. In 1982, I won 10 games, lost 13. And you're with the Cubs now. Yeah, I got traded to the Cubs. Phillies got tired of me and said, see ya. So I get traded to the Cubs, and um, I'm the number two pitcher, starting pitcher on the team. So Dallas wants me to get 230, 240, 250 innings in. And so I know I'm going to chance to win some ball games. I only got 199 in because I missed a month due to fighting up in Montreal. Dallas got tired of it. As a matter of fact, when uh, – the time came around for a contract. I said, Dallas, I pitched 199 innings. And he said, that's not nearly enough. You missed a month and a half in the middle of a run that you were on. By the way, when you came back, you lost like five or six or seven games out of the 10 starts you had. Like You couldn't win. And your record was 10 and 13. You were having a pretty good year. And we had a bad ball club. So he threw all those things at me. At the end of that offseason, I went home and didn't think about it. You know, because every time I'd get my back to the wall and I'd pitch bad and play bad, which I didn't have a great career, but I'd give you two or three games after that. I don't know how. And you'd look at it and say, well, we're not getting rid of him. And it would be above average games. But that particular time he decided and got to spring training. He had Ryan Durham to come to speak to me and another player. I walked in and there's Ryan Durham, an alcoholic, you know, that spoke to people. And I thought, they're going to an alcoholic to talk to me? What good? What's this, this guy's all, he couldn't handle his booze. So he comes over. I was a smart butt. He came over and he said, uh, Dickie, I want you to go two weeks without drinking. And another player he, they were concerned about. And I said, okay, no problem. So me and that other player left. A couple of days later, we're playing horseshoes. I can't play horseshoes without drinking beer. As I grew up, everybody drinks beer, plays horseshoes. So I started drinking beer. I wasn't going to get drunk, though. I'm going to prove him wrong. So we went and got shrimp. We're going to cook shrimp. We cook shrimp with beer. And you're not going to just waste all the beer and put it in shrimps. You're going to have a few beers with the shrimp. I'm not an alcoholic. So he comes back in two weeks and he said, did you drink to me? And I said, no. You know, when you're, when you're in addiction, you can be a pretty good liar. The only guy that ever knew that when I was lying and every time he knew it was Dallas Green, he knew when I was lying. He always told me you're a bad liar. So then he asked the other guy and the other guy goes, uh, yeah, we drank. I said, we, what do you mean? We, you, you drank. Do you tell on yourself? Don't tell on me. So Dallas got mad. He called me and he said, first of all, you're a liar. Did you drink? I said, yes, sir. And I told him all the reasons why. And he goes, he called me pie. He says, no. You drank again, and you're done. And I'll see that you don't play. And I believe him. I wouldn't call no players association on Dallas Green. So I said, I'm going to quit drinking. And he threatened to test me. And I, you know how they test for alcohol. They go in and pull a blood. <laughs> so I said, I'm not going to go through that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to prove him wrong. So I quit drinking. That second half of spring training, I, was, I impressed myself. I mean, I should have been smart enough to realize I was unhittable the second half. I remember uh, Paul Molitor and Robin Yowd and – all those guys on the Brew Crew, they were all great hitters. And that's who I, it's only, I think he did intentionally. That's the only team I pitch against. Well, if you don't, you pitch against that team, you're going to shut them out. You're pitching pretty good. Mm-hmm. 
because for the first batter of the game, they were tough to get out. So I had faced him like three or four times in spring training. Nobody faces him as much as I do. And I, I don't know if it was the schedule or Dallas just said, pitch him against them. And I started dominating. I was and dominate that team. I don't care if it's spring training. Whenever you get you pitch against that team, that was an unbelievable hitting ball club. They were like the 79 Pirates. So at the end of that spring, I, I remember thinking to myself, man, this sobriety stuff's pretty good. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at myself like, why am I performing so much better? And then I got all my teammates going, man, you don't have a problem. Come on, let's go. And so we went to, we went to Chicago. Uh, Ferguson Jenkins uh, was, a, was a guy that was one of my great friends. He was the best man at my wedding. He is the first person to give me a heads up about, you know, you have great stuff, Dickie. If you just get rid of that other part, you know, you need to, you, you, Fergie didn't say quit drinking. Fergie didn't say, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do in your life. Fergie just said, this stuff's ruining you. It's messing you up. I'd never had nobody tell me that. And, and Dallas told me, now Fergie told me. So I make my first start of the year and uh, I end up losing to Bill Gullickson. I believe it was Bill Gullickson, Montreal, one nothing. I pitched very good, seven innings. I think I struck out eight, give up walk, two walks or something, and and the only run scored was on a, a bloop double, a ground ball, and another ground ball. So I pitched very well. I was going to Cincinnati. I still had the same mindset. I said, I think I, I think this stuff's working. Went to Cincinnati. A former teammate of mine came over. We went out drinking. It's hard to say no to certain people um, when they don't understand. And so I had a tough time saying no. I said no a lot that night, and then yeah, somewhere along the line. I'm, I'm definitely not blaming him. He's a wonderful person, him and his wife. And we went out to a bar in Kentucky. So we got out of Cincinnati. Somehow we ended up back in Cincinnati. Isn't that funny? At another bar drinking. Don't ask me to really tell you what happened that night either. Because I really don't. I've heard stories. Mm -hmm. But that shows you have a very bad addiction problem. Uh, There was a fight. I don't know what happened. I just know I got arrested and charged with assaulting a police officer. And sued for nearly a million dollars. And sentenced to 180 days in a prison. Which was... Like, whoa, it was a county jail, but it was a prison. Mm-hmm. And Cincinnati County, Hamilton Jail. And I said, wait, whoa, 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 time out. Um, I, 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 I was so messed up that night that I didn't know where I was when I was in a, they handcuffed me. I must have been really, must have been going off pretty bad because they handcuffed me uh, to the chair I was in, feet and arms. Dallas Green, John Vukovic, God bless, God rest both of those souls. Billy Connors, yeah, he's gone too. And um, uh, uh, who else came over? Uh, John Cox, they all came to the uh, uh, Dallas Leelia. Dallas Leelia. I think John was with them. They came to the emergency room where I was, and they walked in and they seen me. And and, and that's when I, I was so angry. And they walked over and they, I said, y'all, I said, y'all would have done the same thing. Alice, you would have done the same thing. Vuk, you would have done the same thing. I said, Lee, you would have done the same thing. And I got to Billy Connors, and for some reason, this became a story that I've told for many years. Billy, you wouldn't have done nothing because Billy was not a fighter, you know, and the rest of them were. And that's how I rationalized in my mind that y'all would have done the same mm-hmm. thing. And I didn't know what I'd done. You know, I, I'm pretty sure I was the guilty party. Um, and I went, and they got me out of jail on appeal, sent me back to uh, Chicago and made me go to a rehab. I was infuriated that Dallas Green was making me go, but I wasn't going to battle him. I figured I'd go in and serve my time. I'd go into the rehab and I'm not going to, uh, you know, and I'm just going to put ice on my knee. The bad thing is I lost my fastball that day. I had my ACL and MCL torn. Now, if you go back in 1982, they didn't do surgery on them. So I'm very proud of the fact that after I went into the rehab that I picked myself up and played seven years and I'll 
touch on that later. But when I got out of uh, jail, went to the rehab, I'm sitting in there on the third day of the rehab. I, 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 first couple of days, I listen to people tell their stories. I was going, I'll never tell my story. As much as I talk now, I didn't talk back then. That's how I was drinking. So I said, I'll never tell my story. That's these weak people. Third day, I realized these people are me. And I felt pretty good about realizing, even though I was in a bad situation, I started to think different. I said, my mother had to watch me on 2020. No, on 2020, 60 minutes. My mother had to watch me on that show, going into jail with all the other uh, uh, problem guys in baseball that I would look down on. Now I'm the worst. And I, I, my mother gave her life to raise me, and I'm, I'm embarrassing this woman. Um, and she was my hero. And I'm thinking, how, how much should I let Dallas Green down? And, you know, how about all these incidents as I've been in? They all, I, I looked at them in one little lump sum, like, how did I get to this far alive? You know, what made me do these things? And a lot of times people will tell you, if you interviewed all my teammates, they'd say Dickie was one of the greatest people to be around when he was drinking. Funniest guy you want to be around. You had more fun with him unless he got rowdy. Mm-hmm. Then you want to get away. So those rowdy moments became bigger if you look through the time that I went from 75 up to 1983. They were progressing. The anger was starting to come out. They were progressing to violence. They were progressing to fighting. You look at me wrong. I want to fight you. Um, you know, I, I, I uh, grew up fighting. Uh, I, I love what Muhammad Ali said about fighting. It's one of the most inhuman things you can do, and I really believe that now. But I, as I grew up, it was a toughness thing. So I, I confused that in my mind. You know, if a man wants to fight, you got to do it. Uh, today, they don't fight like we did growing up. You know, people kick, people knife you and do certain things. I expected people to do fair fights, and it was a it was a thing that we grew up with. So I confused that in my mind, and maybe that's what would come out when I was drinking. Like, hey, that's maybe that was my personality, and I didn't know it. Uh, but I had another personality, and uh, with the blackouts, everything you know, I didn't remember anything in Cincinnati. I didn't remember anything in Venezuela. So I'm sitting there thinking about that, and I go, I got very embarrassed. So uh, I asked my counselor that day. I said, I'm ready. He goes, You're not ready. But I said, I'm ready. I, I'm, I'm ready. I will not drink again. Now, I'm not going to sit here and lie to you. I had uh, something that happened in my life, and I don't know if I should share this or not, but um, I had someone to put something in my drink one time, and in my mind, and it messed me up. Um, I put myself in a bad predicament at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. How you do that? Some young lady came over, talked to me about selling me a house because she heard me talking to the bartender. And I really used to be a little tough on people that relapsed. And I don't call that a relapse, but my brain did, you know, and I, and I had, and I called my sponsor. And so that day when I walked out at rehab, I said, I'll never drink again. I really believed that. I really believed that it was nothing would bring me to drinking again. I really believed that I would not have to do anything. If I wanted to go AA meetings, I'd go. And I took AA seriously. I went to 90 meetings, 90 days. I followed what, you know, Dr. Bob, Bill W., Father Martin, and all the uh, uh, mental health people told me, I followed the program. I wanted to stay straight. Um, if I wouldn't have followed any of it in my mind, I could have stayed straight anyway because that's how much I was fed up with it. But then I found out one day, and I don't remember when it was, when someone put something in my drink that I had the urges. and didn't drink. At least in my mind, at least in my mind, I thought I did because I lost four hours of my life that night, that day. And, uh, and thank God I was in a restaurant down in where everybody knew me. But that power of what it does to your brain showed me that I was so wrong and the rehab was so right many, many years later. So I've invested my life into trying to make sure that I 
respect recovery more so than ever. I'm humbled by the program that got me sober. Um, you know, I can do the 12 steps frontwards and backwards, but I'm more humbled and more gracious, gracious, gracious alive. That's a Southern thing. I'm more gracious that I, I have more gratitude that I am sober now that I got kind of comfortable with it. And I think some people do, some people don't, but I never got comfortable around Thanksgiving or Christmas, but it was throughout the year when I'm on a ball field and I don't need to go to media. I don't need to go, but I'm more comfortable now understanding that sobriety is more than getting sober. It's growing and, and recovering. It's growing and getting better with your life. Uh, so, you know, I'm proud of the fact I've been sober since April 9th of 1983. Like I said, I don't, I don't battle the fact that I wanted to drink a couple times, but not like people would understand. I didn't. I, I mean, I, I, that night, I don't know what happened, but I've had this dream ever since I've been sober that I wake up and I'm drunk in a car and there's an all black car. Of course, it's a police car. It's an all black car sitting there beside me and they're looking at me going, your career's over. And I ain't had that dream in 10 years, but I used to have it all the time. And I'd wake up and it was a frightening dream. Like, how did I drink? And I didn't drink. But uh, by the grace of God and help of others, I got sober on April 9th of 1983. I, I, I wanted to apologize to this police officer. I didn't think they would take it the right way. I wish I would have went to Cincinnati, reached out, found him. His name's Officer Kim Cohen and said, look, man. But I didn't think, you know, he sued me. So I didn't think it would be a good thing to do. But I prayed about it. Being a Christian, I prayed about it. And I said, you know what? I don't have any resentment for the judge that sent me to jail. That was a trip. I don't have any resentment to anybody that, you know, whatever happened that night saved my life. Uh, my resentment is towards myself that I wasn't a better son. I wasn't a better, Dallas Green put his neck on the line for me. I wasn't a better player. Uh, so on April 9th of 1983, I went in tr- treatment, got out, played ball, finished my jail time at the end of the year. I'm glad it went that way because at the end of the year, I went into jail. I knew my life was much different because jail for me was not that difficult, but it was very uh, degrading. They tell you when to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. tell you when not to. People want to fight you all day long. Um, you know, I, I, I had so many people that wanted to fight me and I would find a way out. You know, like Muhammad Ali told me, you know, it's the most inhuman thing that, you know, I, and I, I, I mean, I, I, that quote by Muhammad Ali has always stayed with me. And, uh, you know, I, I think it is. Uh, it, why would I fight? You only fight to protect something. Uh, I love the fact that I wasn't a fighter no more. I'm still known as a fighter. I haven't been in a fight. And, and Andres Galarrago had to blow it. He charged me on the mound in 1987. <laughs> and I'm going, now nah, I got a fight. You kidding me? I hit him on purpose because they'd hit Dawson. And I hit him in the rear end. I made a bad judgment call that day, too. They brought me in to hit Dennis Martinez to protect Dawson. And I didn't hit him because I was mad at Galarrago. And I said, if I hit Galarrago on the night before accidentally. And he cursed me out all the way to first base. So you're still competitive. And I said, you know what? I know I'm finishing this game. I'll wait and hit him when I should have went ahead and hit Martinez because no fight was going to break out with Martinez. So there's still that, you know, that self-defeating mm-hmm. behavior still back there somewhere. So I planned my own demise that day because I broke my wrist. So I waited and hit him. He charged him out and we got in a fight. So, but baseball players really don't fight. I think you figured that out. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of, a lot of meat in the middle and <laughs> yeah. guys all talking about how much damage they do. If this guy wasn't holding me back and stuff right, like right. that. Well, but, I got out of rehab and I went, finished a year, but I wanted to share this with you before, before I, I wanted to get this in. But when I got out of rehab, I went back to play. I wasn't the same player. And then that hit me. And I knew I was going to be scarred for life because now I'll never know 
And it's not a bad one. I, I, I mean, you know, it's not something that I need help for. My, I mean, I dealt with it. But it, it really gave me a, a feeling that I'll, I'll live with this for the rest of my life. I threw it away. You know, like the young kid Taylor for the, uh, for the Yankees. You know, one draft pick. He threw it away in a bar and he rammed his shoulder. And, well, I threw it away that day too. People don't realize that. But what I'm proud of is the fact that there's no way if I'm a general manager, I choose me on any club from that point on. But I worked so hard, outworked so many people that I was able to come into spring training in better shape than everybody and just persevere with guts along and make the club as the last pitcher for the next seven years. I never was the guy. I was always the guy that they wanted to get rid of, but they liked me mm-hmm. and I worked so hard. And then I'd get down to the very end. They'd say, I'll put him on the club. And I knew that. So I'm proud of that fact because that was tremendously hard work. But the fact that I could have worked like that in the beginning, who knows what could have happened. So, I think in Philadelphia, your playing days, you're best known for Game 4, 1980 World Series. Only known for that. Against <laughs> <laughs> the Kansas City Royals. In Kansas City, you throw a brush back to George Brett. I think they had hit Larry Christensen around, and you came in. I think he only got like one out. So it's game four. You guys are up two games to one, but the Royals are rolling. Let's see. Now I knew this. Go ahead. Keep going. And you come in, and uh, just the situation, George Brett, obviously, that was the year he hit 390, American League MVP. I mean, just a, a phenomenal player. And... The, the Royals are, are starting to grab the series, starting to grab the momentum. And I think everybody could feel it. And then it turns on a dime in one moment when you brush, when you send George Brett to the dirt. Talk talk about that. Matt, I'm going to give you the truth. And I almost messed it up again. <laughs> You're right. There was one out. In my mind, I came in with the bases loaded and two outs. And I struck out Willie Wilson. And I told that story for years because I never watched myself pitch. And then finally, video Dan Stevens gave me a a CD, a DVD of the fourth game, and I was able to watch it. I, three things came out of that. One, I've been lying to Philadelphia reporters for I have 40 years now. Two, I had better stuff than I ever thought I had. And three, how did George Brett get out of the way? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'd seen the knockdown pitch before, but this is a little bit different. So I came into the ball ballgame. Uh, Willie Mays Aikens had hit a home run off Larry in the first inning. They were up four to nothing. He made it five by hitting one in the second inning off me. I entered the game and walked Daryl Porter on four pitches. I entered the game with one man on and one out, as you stated, and I walked Daryl Porter. I struck out the next guy on three pitches, which was – no, I walked Clint Hurdle on four pitches, struck out Daryl Porter on three pitches. See how hard it is to mm-hmm. change habits? And then so then uh, uh, Washington got a – UL Washington got an infield hit, loaded the bases. And then I didn't go 3-0 and as I in my mind I did. I threw one ball – and then I threw a pitch, and Willie Wilson grounded out. Barely got him out at first. So now I go to the second inning. And I get Brett out. He hits a ball so hard, I thought he was going to tear Manny's hands off. And what a year that man had. That, what a great hitter. And so Willie Mays Aikens comes up and hit one off me. And he hit it a long way. He always hit him a long way. And I way. love watching him. I, so I turn to watch it. But then I hear Pete. And I hear Pete kind of saying, hey, you need to run, Willie. So I turn back around. I see Willie hasn't moved. So I popped off. You know, I was a little rowdy then, you know, because I was still in my addictive state. I hollered at him. He couldn't hear me. I said, if you don't run, I'm going to hit you in the head. And I used to pop off by that hitting people in the head. What a dangerous thing to do. And I'm not proud of the fact that I have hit people in the head. But uh, the next year, I'd hit somebody in the head, and it changed my perception forever. It never came close to the head. But I was taught that if you want to knock a guy down, you throw it right here. That's the way we were taught, right here. 
You don't throw it under the armpit. Later on, we did that. If you want to knock him down, I'm not going to say who taught me that, but I'm going to say, throw it at his head. Then you won't hit him because I didn't want to put men on base. I walked a ton of people one year early in my career. I hit 28 guys trying to hit zero. So I had a hit batter problem with right-handed hitters. So I don't want to put you on. I mean, I won four and lost 17 my second year and hit 28 guys, and that stayed in my mind. I want to get you out with 0-2, so I threw it to head, never thinking I'd hit somebody in the head. That wasn't throwing at a man's head to me. It was throwing it in that area. He'll get out of the way, and it's a knockdown pitch. Mm -hmm. And if you go back in the 50s, that's the way they did it in the 60s. So once once I said that to Willie Mays Aikens, and I got to the fourth inning, and Brett was up there, and I threw two nasty fastballs. I mean, they had some hop on them. One, he swings and misses. The other one, he fouls off. And so I decided on the mound at that moment that I was going to knock him down. And I've told this story different ways, and I'm going to start telling it the way that really happened. And the reason I've told it different ways, I didn't want to tell people that this little idiot, that that nothing baseball pitcher threw at a legend's head because it wasn't really at his head. How do you say I was throwing there? but not with the intent of hitting him. I was throwing there with saying, you get out of the way, you're going to die. You know, die. That's kind of the mentality I had, which is terrible. It's a shameful mentality. So I expired it. I said, I'm going to put him on his rear end. And when I went through my windup, I've told this story before too, I almost talked myself out of it because I was a big George Brett fan. You know, we're fans of other players. He was a great player. You know, I, I'd watch him on TV and hitting a home run off Gossage, and I, he was a great player. So when I, I decided I'm going to flip him, and that's the way I flip guys. I'm flipping this guy. And somewhere in my stupid mind, I thought I could flip him and hit Willie anyway. But once I flipped him, he went down. And he, what an acrobatic move he made. If I would have hit him, I would have been the biggest villain in baseball. Mm-hmm. And no one would have ever respected me. And now I, 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 get, I sign autographs and make money on the knockdown pitch to George Brett. Isn't that kind of crazy? Mm-hmm. But when he flipped and went down, I had no thoughts. I'd done that many times. It was nothing. It was National League Baseball to me. It's no big deal. I knocked you down, dude. Get up and hit. Come on. Show me what you got. Dallas Green had taught me when you knock a man down, don't give him a good pitch to hit. So I threw my nastiest pitch of the whole World Series, a nasty slider, which you referred to earlier. Yep. He took probably his ugliest cut he's taken maybe in his career, yep. and I struck him out. And then I struck out Willie Mays Aikens, and I struck out uh, 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 Hal McCray. So I was throwing the ball very well, and I, I walked off the field. I felt pretty good about it. And when I walked off the field, uh, well, first of all, when he hit the ground, the place erupted into the big, at first it went silent, eerie silent. When he hit the ground, it went, went, and then silent. Mm -hmm. And then the booze came. Yeah. So I, and then the manager ran out, Jim Fry ran out. The knockdown pitch in itself was not going to do anything. And people miss this. And I'm smart enough. I'm not that smart, but I'm not dumb enough to think that my pitch to Brett changed anything. The pitch had a process and changed it. Pete Rose changed it. When Pete Rose ran in to defend me, things changed because he challenged their whole ball club. He basically said, we knocked you down. You don't like it? Do something about it. That's basically what Pete said. Fry ran out. Pete said, he's not throwing at him. And Jim's going, what do you mean? How do you know him? And Pete said something that, you know, it was kind of funny. I laughed at it, you know, on the mound. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't intimidated at all. I, I, I couldn't. During that time in my life, you couldn't intimidate me. I wasn't smart enough to be intimidated. So I'm sitting there watching it. I'm just making sure if he comes to the mound, I'm going to have to drop him, you know, <laughs> again. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching him. And uh, Pete goes, if he was throwing at him, he would have hit him. So Fry got tongue-tied. And he's, and Fry's trying to get out to, you know, and Pete goes in challenging him. 
and he tells him, you, you ain't going out there, Jim, you know, and he's hollering at him. They're going back and forth. And then Pete looked at me and said, throw your own blankety blank ball game. It don't. In other words, people said, you want to knock any of those other guys down? Go right ahead. So Pete came in and defended it so much, so adamantly and so powerful with his words, because you couldn't out talk Pete Rose. There was nobody on the field. Maybe Larry Bowe at times, but most of the time Bowe would get beat. And those two guys, they're, they're very quick-witted. And so Pete took the moment. And I, Pete wanted to win. He's a winner. He was a great leader. Mm-hmm. I don't care about his life today. On the field, he was one of the best leaders i ever seen. He showed up to play. He never missed a pitch. He was a role model for every ball player. And he was the best at protecting young guys. So when he went over there, he's telling them, you want some of him? I'm here too. This ain't just him. This is us. Now that changed it. And I think that was the factor. I think that I, I think it made every pitcher came in after me. I think it made their hitters leery. Um, that's my only personal opinion. Uh, I, 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 I've heard different people talk about it, but after telling a lie about the, the, my adventures on the mound and what I thought they were really were for 40 years, I think I'm going to start staying with facts. And if I don't know the facts, I'm not going to comment on it. But some some people have uh, kind of shared stories with me about what different Kansas City players uh, have said, um, you know. And it was a funny event that happened up in William and 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 and, uh, and it's on YouTube. I need to get it off. But I think it was uh, uh, Amos Otis, maybe a very eloquent, great man. It's not Amos Otis. I forget who it was. But they set me up. A couple of players up there said, "Hey, he's mad at you over there." He used to tease me. He's he's really mad at you. He's been drinking, and I, I almost believed him. And so somebody asked me one time because they said he you stole his World Series ring. So I I was like, so I'd get it all over mm-hmm. people everywhere I go. They were they were talking about the pitch. I didn't know how to handle that. I was like, man, why aren't they talking about MVP? And I was embarrassed. And I think some of my former teammates were like, man, you knocked a guy down. You did it all year long. Why are you getting all this? Uh, press but that shows you how the media can turn something mm-hmm. into something and it ended up being a my only thing that people in philadelphia remember me by it's my trademark in philadelphia but going to end this conversation i i had an opportunity to talk to george brett about it and i admitted to him i was throwing up there which i he asked me and i told him he's a wonderful guy uh i thank god that i didn't knock down such a great guy a hall of famer great baseball player uh, someone told me one time his brother, you know, hated me. I would have loved to have talked to his brother and said, man, I'm, you know, I, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I was an idiot then. Uh, it took me two years later, uh, no, a year, another year later, when uh, I beamed a guy in the head, throwing a no-hitter up in uh, New York, Bob Baylor, a little infielder, and everybody was, you know, I, he didn't get up. And that cured me. You know? And even though I hit Clint Hurdle in the head later on, he didn't get up. Uh, but I, But you throw in... But after that, I felt like that if I was going to, I was going to make sure that I knew how to throw in. And so I seen those two events happen and the George Brett thing would pop up in my mind, how lucky I was that I didn't injure such a great baseball player and an ambassador for the game of baseball. And we need to take another break on one-on-one. We will continue our conversation with former Philly Dickie Knowles right after this. When there's no closure to the mystery and the sorrow, Gone Cold is KYW News Radio's true crime podcast about unsolved cases in the Philadelphia area. Someone has to know what happened and who did this. We searched the wooded area, we searched dumpsters. Someone's life ended tonight. It's the most important thing you can investigate as a police officer. Who has the clue that unlocks the truth? 
Search for Gone Cold KYW in the Radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. Our guest this week on one-on-one, former Phillies pitcher Dickie Knowles. So you were drafted by the Phillies, went through the farm system, obviously play your first three years. When you get traded to the Cubs, how did you handle that? How did it land with you? It, it, it was no big deal because Dallas went to Chicago. I'm a Dallas Green guy. So when he went to Chicago, I looked at it as an honor. I should have looked at it as differently. I should have looked at it. Philadelphia Phillies got tired of waiting on potential and realized I'm a dead-end kid. Get rid of him while you can. Uh, you know, I was Dallas's first trade. People don't realize that. He traded uh, uh, Mike Kruko, a 20-game winner, mm-hmm. for myself, Keith Moreland, who he loved Keith Moreland, which I, I've been told many times I was the main part of that trade. Myself, Keith Moreland, Don Larson. I was a main part of that trade. Uh, that Keith Moreland was. But at the time, everybody assumed I was based on potential. So I, I really welcomed that trade. Uh, I, how I got, how I, you know, tell you a little bit more about my life. Tommy Helms, I see him at three o'clock in the morning, a great second baseman for the Cincinnati Reds. And we're both going down a street and I look over and Tommy Helms is beside me and he rolled his window down and I looked at him and he said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going home. He goes, you know, you got traded. I go, when? He goes, today. <laughs> I didn't even know it. <laughs> so uh, I'd been out quite a, quite a while there. And uh, so getting traded to the Chicago Cubs to me was um, at that t- time uh, a blessing more than anything else because I'm going with my man. Right. Thomas. We talked about the moment with the George Brett play. What are some of the other on-field memories that when you think of your career that, that are at the top of the list? Well, you know, pitching in a World Series has to be because I pitched so well in the World Series. And one of the reasons I didn't like the knockdown pitch was I was embarrassed about it um, because of so, you know, I, I was intimidated by the, by the fact that people were making a big deal out of it. But there's another reason. I pitched so well. Mm-hmm. I wanted people to remember that. I was hoping we'd come back and win that ball game. I, I was mad at Dallas for taking me out because I can tell you, if he doesn't take me out, I always wanted 10 strikeouts in a major league game. Never got them. I would have got them that day. They weren't hitting me. Um, some of the other, I threw a one hitter against Tom Seaver, uh, which was one of my boyhood heroes in Cincinnati, I mean, in Chicago against the Cincinnati Reds. The only hit was a little bloop that fell in front of Steve Henderson. Uh, I was dominating that game. I don't have a whole lot of highlights, Matt. You know, <laughs> I had about three or four shutouts, but I think one of my fondest memories in, in the game of baseball, uh, for me was coming back in 1987 to the Cubs and having a good year. Uh, the whole thing surrounding that is kind of funny. I called Dallas Green once again and have a job in baseball, and he was hard on me. I called him up and said, I, I, Dallas, how you doing? He says, uh, I'm doing good, Pi. How are you? And I said, I'm doing great. He says, I can't, I, I can't sign any free agents. I, you're, you're, my agent was Dick Malls. Your agent has um, Andre Dawson out here running around on my camp trying to sign this guy. I can't sign any. I said, well, how are you? Good to see you. How's the family? I said, you wearing that World Series ring? He said, pie, you threw one dead gum pitch. So he had some humor to him. I said, well, you're right about that, Dallas. And he said, well, I can't tell you to get in that 280 Dotson of yours and drive out here that there won't be a room for you to holler in. But you'll have to earn every minute of it. I can't tell you that we won't let you throw. And, and I can't tell you all that stuff if you came out here. And I was like, I'm on my way. Right. So that was Dallas Green at his finest. So I drove out there. There was a room for me at the Holiday Inn. I went to the Holiday Inn. I went to the ballpark the next day. And one of my greatest moments was I didn't have a job in baseball. I knew I had some respect in the game, finally, that I changed my life. I wouldn't have got this if I wouldn't have got sober. And I'm out throwing. I'm going to throw after they get done on the side. And Keith Moreland went in and got his uniform 
out of the, the dirty clothes to put it on to come out and catch me. He didn't think that it was proper to have the, uh, some young kid out there catching me. And, of course, it was okay. And uh, uh, some of the great things that happened with Jody Davis and Leon Durham and all the players, and Fergie was a consultant at that time, all these people came out to watch and support me throwing on the side. And, of course, Herm Sturette was a pitching coach, so I knew I was going to favor well. So uh, Dallas put me through spring training that year with no pay. Just to, uh, uh, sit on the bench, wear a uniform. If they need you, they'll use you. If not, I can't help you. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Lee Smith a couple times bumped me up in front of him to pitch, and I pitched lights out. I pitched great, made the club, had a, had a really good year in the big leagues. I got traded for myself that year. He yes. traded me to the Detroit Tigers. And going over to the Tigers, now I knew when I got traded to the Tigers that I wasn't just an extra arm. Everybody on that ball club was better than me. But the fact that they traded for me and the fact that the year before Sparky Anderson came out in the papers and said I'd never pitch for him because I hit a couple of his guys and we had a beanball war. Uh, but I was only following orders. But that the, be on that ball club and, and have Alan Trammell and Kurt Gibson and Daryl Evans, one of the greatest people ever to play this game. He's just a wonderful guy, gamer, and have these guys to call me a gamer. And I appeared in two ball games, and that was – well, I appeared in four ball games, save two. Uh, didn't appear the last probably six or eight ball games, but to be over there and be with that club, and to see how my career had finally gotten to the point where I was needed mm-hmm. for a pennant-winning team. Now I wasn't dumb enough to re- think that I was going to go over there and be thrown into the limelight, but I knew I was an extra arm for them, and that made me feel pretty good. That year, kind of, it was my last year in the big leagues, really, because 1990 really doesn't count. That kind of uh, made me realize that. Uh, you know, that my life had really changed and I had developed uh, not only friendships, but a lot of respect from people in uniform, which I went a long way from throwing at a guy's head to get that respect. You know, Dallas Green is the name that keeps coming up. Did you gravitate to him right away as a young player? Like, did, no. was, it was the opposite. You <laughs> Dallas Green was the hardest. There's nobody like Dallas Green. Uh, Jim Snyder might have rivaled him a little bit, but Dallas Green was tough. He would sit on this top of this uh, uh, minor league ballpark down in, uh, we called it his porch, you know. He'd sit there and walk around and look at you. And if you thought you, he had eyes on the back of his head. If you thought you could get away with something, you'd hear your name. Uh, funny story, one day I'm running with Kevin Sauchet, who could not run. And Dallas had hollered at me the day before. He goes, hey, Knowles, you better start running. Well, I seen him up there and I started running. He knew I could run. So the next day, I'm running with this Kevin Saucier, who can't walk and chew gum at the same time, one of my best friends in life. Sauce is running, and I'm blowing by him because Dallas is watching. And so Sauce goes, hey, rookie, if you don't slow down, man, you're embarrassing me. Cut it out. And I'm looking at him like, I'm sorry, that guy on that roof up there? Uh-uh. Run with somebody else. So we start running because Sauce tripped me. <laughs> and I was like, so, you know, I, we're ready to fight, you know. And I, he tripped me. So um, – I was waiting for Dallas to holler at me. I was going, it's his fault. He can't run a lick. But Dallas didn't miss anything. He was very tough on you. He taught me more about baseball than anyone, him and Johnny Oates uh, and John Vukovic, three people that are as good as teaching, and Larry Rojas. Oh, you could keep going. We had some great teachers. But the one thing he taught me the most was uh, that if I, if I did not straighten my life out and change, that I was just going to be another guy that ended up on the streets, probably doing drugs. I don't know if I'd have done drugs, but I'd have been an alcoholic on the streets or been out there fighting in bars, you know, the rest of my life, probably wouldn't have lived very long. 
or I would have been worse dead, you know. And I think what he taught me was that uh, that you can impact people in better ways by being alive and being here and doing things the right way. As hard as he was, he did things the right way. He believed in being a man and doing things the right way. I learned a lot from John Vukovic about that, too. And uh, they stayed with me, though. Uh, Lee Ilya, uh, an unbelievable guy that I, I don't know how Lee ever tolerated me playing for him because I always did something stupid on his club. Any regrets when you look back at your baseball career? A lot. Uh, I, I, I are, you at, with, are you home with, at, are you at peace with oh, them? Oh, I'm totally at peace with them, but, but I think you can have regrets and still be at peace. I was, I, I don't know how I teamed up with Cal Ripken, one of my favorite people. I was in an autograph thing and um, they had questions and Cal was sitting there and I don't know how I ended up there. It was down in Lancaster and a guy from the audience, nobody asked me questions. Why would they? You got Cal Ripken there. So I'm sitting there like a knot on the log, and Cal's such a wonderful person. He's trying to get me involved, you know, and uh, he said, well, you know, Dickie, and, and, and Dickie won a World Series with the Phillies, and finally somebody asked me a question. They just asked Cal the question. They said, Cal, if you went back in your career, would you change anything? He said, not a thing, before they could get it out of their mouth. And I looked at him. I said, that's, that's great. That's the way life should be. That's great. You gave it your all. I think nobody could outwork me. I think Dallas Green would tell you that. I think John Vukovic, anybody that played with me would tell you, you can't outwork him. Um, but there's a smart way to work. So that guy asked me. So I'm at, he looked at me and I went, don't ask me. I said, everything. And here's my reason why. I don't think anybody would want to go through what I went through. Uh, it was all self-induced. You know, it's not like things happened to you that you had no control over. I had control over everything that happened to me. I was the problem. Uh, I would have loved to take in the God-given ability. I think the good Lord gives us ability to use to glorify him. So that was another thing I had trouble with. I grew up, my mother beat me over the head with a Bible. She's my hero. So that, that came back in my life. And my mother was always big on that. Some of my mother's favorite men growing up because she had a traumatizing life too was Martin Luther King because he spoke in dreams. She I always had dreams. Billy Graham. So, you know, I always got Billy Graham freeway, Billy Graham highway, Billy Graham throughway. So, and then John Wayne. Don't ask me why he was in there, but it's a, a strange group of people when you put John Wayne in there. It's not a strange group. It's a great group of people. So my mother, um, the devastating effects that had, I, I know that this had on her, uh, you know, I would have changed that f- for anything. I would have I been a better son. Um, you know, my mother seen me beat people up. My mother seen me drunk. I nearly killed a man for her one day because um, I, I heard he slapped her. And so I went over and nearly killed him um, uh, in a in a in a you know, drinking so much Jack Daniels, I was surprised I was able to go over and even do that. Those are embarrassing things that I would have taken back. I would have taken a knockdown pitch back from George Brett. I don't think he deserved to have that on his resume. I would have said, it's me and you. I can get you out with this slider. I don't think I would have done that. Um, You know, my thought process then was, you know, I knocked down a lot of guys. Um, It didn't make me better. He looked back at my baseball Mm -hmm. card, so – uh, I would have changed the way that I lived my life, and I think it would have made me a better baseball player. Would I have been a Hall of Famer? Probably not. I mean, come on. Um, there's our, there's some people that said I had ability as good as ability as anybody. You know, Ferguson Jenkins would sit here and tell you unbelievable ability. Uh, when I got traded to Chicago, there was a thing in the paper. It had my name, Knowles 48, a locker on Rush Street. Fergie was the first person. He became such a dear friend to me. I asked him, what, what are they trying to say? He said, they're trying to tell you you're an alcoholic. And I remember, what are you going to say to Ferguson Jenkins, mm-hmm. the most eloquent man on the face of the earth and loves everybody? I looked at him like, okay, whatever. Uh, I would have changed that. everything 
that created the problems in my life. And I know that sounds like, I hate saying it. I used to get up and I'd get in a shower and I'd go through my life. Uh, it seems like I've lived my life backwards, wishing I could have changed things. But I came to peace with it to since April 9th of 1983. I think that's why I didn't want to see the World Series game. And I finally looked at it. That's why I didn't know what happened. I knew what happened in game five. I knew what happened in game two. I knew what happened in game one because I watched it. I didn't know what happened in my game. But a lot, just about everything. I think I've told you about everything I've changed. Yeah, but all that has made you a better man today. So it's like almost this weird paradox, if that makes sense. Well, I hope that sometimes I introduce myself as the most despicable human being that I know because, believe me, I don't have a self-esteem issue. I think we all love ourselves. Everyone wants to be loved, belong, be capable. We just admit that. But I look. I, I I think I look at it in reality a lot. I I uh, I want to get better every day. I want to do things. Uh, you know, I'm 63 years old, and there's no way that I ever thought I'd make it to 63. When I was young, 50 was dead. You know, mm-hmm. I thought 50 year old people. Uh, I'm in good shape. God, you know, thank you for that. I I um, I, I work out. I do things. Uh, uh, you know that. I think some young people probably couldn't do. My son can't keep up with me. So I've been blessed that way. We do yard work. I, I blow him away. So God's given me this motor that keeps running. I, I'm not I'm not a person that sits still very much. So as I've transpired my my whole as I've 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 evolved my whole life, whatever word, you know, give me a better word to use than that, but as my life has uh turned into this uh from April 9th on to this growth process. I think what I've become is a lot more humble, but I've also become a lot more simple. Uh, I enjoy a lot of things. I enjoy people. Uh, I'm not looking to be a millionaire. I'm not looking to, to be the best baseball player. Um, you know, I, I, I think it has made me who I am in many ways, uh, but we could have done that without that heartache. So let's end where we started. We started talking about what you do today with the Phillies. So in that position, what is a good day? When you go to sleep at night, and I, I'm sure it, you always feel like you, but what is a, a a good special day in your job? When do you feel like this this really, I made a difference today? When you make a difference in another human being. When David brought me in to take this job, I was afraid of making a difference in another human being. I wasn't afraid of helping people uh, get into treatment, get help for drugs and alcohol. That was my mission. But David had asked me one day, said, you know, you're going to take a role where you're going to change people's lives. And it intimidated me. I said, I'd rather take a, I would much rather take a role that help guys get to the big leagues. And he said, well, just look at it that way. If you help one get to the big leagues, you've been success. My first EAP program, I mean, first EAP uh, uh, client, my first EAP case, um, and I don't want to say this on the air, but I'll come as close as I can, was probably one of the uh, most difficult cases. It was a dual diagnosed person that was related to a ball player. Uh, her addiction problem included sexual abuse, and I had no knowledge of sexual abuse. I didn't, I didn't even know what to do there. I, I mean, I had read about it. Mm-hmm. I had went to Rutgers Summer School and heard about it, but I hadn't dealt with it. So uh, uh, the good Lord works in great ways. Uh, we had a catch in, instructor with us, and Andy Simonek, such a wonderful guy. He had asked me to meet Lou Abrams up in uh, Mir- uh, that's called Marworth, up at Marworth, up in Scranton, where we had our AAA team. And I go, why do I got to go meet this guy? He's a great guy, Dickie, and he's in your field. I go, there's a lot of people in my field. I know everybody in the treatment field. Well, just go over and introduce yourself. He, you know, So I went over, and he was the main man there. He was the CEO there. 
or clinical director and, and all that above. So I went over and introduced myself, had lunch with him. And don't you know that when this case came up and I had to go up and handle this and very difficult case, that he was right there with me. And that was the guy I needed to see. They had a sexual trauma. Uh, they had sex abuse and trauma uh, right there at, at Marworth. And, and he guided me through the whole thing. So to help that person, I went back in David's office. I walked in. I said, I know what you mean. You know, it's not just about getting them to the big leagues. It's making it. And I knew I'd made a difference in two people's lives. And they're very happily married today. And she was able to deal with uh, all the problems that she'd grown up with and why she masked them with alcohol and drugs and painkillers at the time. So to see that person change their life is probably one of the most rewarding things I ever had to happen in my life. And there's been a few more. Um, so what's hard, Matt, is you only remember for the ones that you don't help. Mm-hmm. That's something I had to learn in this game because nobody knows what you do. If you're doing your job correctly, unless it's a management referral, nobody knows. Right. And that's the way it should be. Well, when you make help a person, I had a professor at uh, uh, Rutgers to tell me something one day. And he says, if you think you're making a, a difference in people's lives, you're full of, you know, he wrote it on the board. But if you can help people make a difference in their own life. And I went home that night at a stand at Rutgers summer school and I couldn't get over that message. I kept thinking, that's what it is. That's what happened to me. People help me make a difference in my life. And so when you help a person, and sometimes people need you to help them, period. You know, depression's nothing to play around with. I mean, we spend, I don't know what the numbers are on depression, but they're phenomenal, billions of dollars on depression. So when you see somebody hurt and you don't, you're not going to help everybody. And sometimes the the, the period of getting help takes a lot longer than you want it to. But you got to be committed to that person. And you also have to understand you can't help them all. That's the heart part for me is I think that I should be able to help anyone that's in need and if I don't help them it's hard to sleep and the reality is sometimes people are not ready for help Dickie Knowles thanks so much for coming in Matt thank you and that will do it for this week's show one on one is an original sports podcast from KYW News Radio if you like the show and want to help us out make sure you are subscribed so you don't miss an episode and you can help more people find out about the podcast by finding the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod and you can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060 thanks to former Phillies pitcher Dickie Knowles for our being our guest this week. And this is our final episode of the calendar year. Thank you for listening all year long, and I hope you have a happy holiday season. My name is Matt Leon. Come back in the new year for another good conversation with someone you should know more about.